Generosity is a deliberate choice that we make. Generosity is something that is modeled, and it's also something that is followed. Uh, Generosity is intentional. It has to be intentional in our lives, and it has to be intentional in the lives of the people that we are discipling, we're mentoring, we're bringing up, we're training, okay? And so uh, outside of the video today, you're probably not even going to hear the word tithe in this whole message. How crazy is that to start a series on generosity and not dive right into that concept right away? Uh, The first thing that I want to mention to you is we really believe that God has called us to be a kingdom of heaven type church on earth, okay? A kingdom of heaven type church on earth. What does that mean? What does that look like? Let me remind you of uh, a very simple prayer and yet so profound that Jesus taught his disciples. We'll put it up here for you. It's in Matthew chapter 6, and we're just going to look at the beginning of it. And if you've been taught it, and we refer to it a lot here around Faith Chapel, it's commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Now, this is in a moment when Jesus' disciples say, hey, Jesus, would would you teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray? So I find it interesting. There are so many times in the scriptures that we can see that because the Holy Spirit, God's presence, was moving in the lives of people, they asked questions that Jesus then answered, okay? So he's drawing them by his presence. They're having their understanding opening up to, opened up to different things. And then he responds to their desire to, to be educated or have revelation in a certain subject. And this one about prayer, they're like, John's disciples pray. We need to know how to pray. And they'd been watching the life of Jesus for a while and saw the influence that he carried and the miracles that he did. And they knew that he had a prayer life and they're like, teach us how to pray. And so he says to them, well, this is how you should do it. And he he gives them this model for prayer. He starts off with our father in heaven, holy is your name, hallowed is your name. Now, let me just remind you of the context of this moment. A couple thousand years ago when Jesus lived here and he was in Jerusalem There was a culture in Jerusalem, speaking of culture, there was a culture in Jerusalem that you weren't even allowed to say God's name out loud because they felt like if you said God's name out loud and you had a wrong motive in your heart or a wrong thought on your mind, that you should be executed for it. Uh, They took very seriously that command that says not to take the name of the Lord in vain. And because they took that so seriously, they actually quit saying his name. They got away from that. And so I find it interesting that that Jesus, to this group of people that grew up in a culture where you didn't even say the name of God, says, not only can you say his name, but you can actually refer to him as your father. It's interesting how something that is good and from the Lord can so easily become religion. Religion always adds to what God does. God said in the scripture, hey, don't take my name in vain. That seems pretty simple, doesn't it? And yet religion said, well, we better not even say his name. And as a matter of fact, when they wrote his name, they wouldn't even write the vowels out. They would only write the consonants because they didn't even want to write his name with a wrong motive. How cultural, how religious, how legalistic is that? And the Lord speaks to them and he says, man, you can say it. You can actually say, Father, if you were here today for the first time and you heard the song, Abba, I belong to you. And you're like, Abba, where did that even come from? Abba would be a term in the, in the New Testament meaning dad. Dad, I belong to you. So it's even taking this word father, and it's even making it a little bit more personal. Dad, I belong to you. 
My Father in heaven, your name is holy. We have the right to approach him. And then this is how he said you should pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now we review this around here at least once a month. And if, if you think it's because I don't have enough stuff to preach about, that would not be the reason. It's actually because it's so easy to partner with the thoughts of the world over the thoughts of the Holy Spirit. And this is, this is a key verse in the life of Faith Chapel. Kingdom is the Greek word basileia, but how do we say it? Basileia, which is incorrect, but it sounds better that way, so we just did it that way. Basileia, it, it means kingdom, but it also means authority. For those of you that are, that are visiting, with, uh, visiting with us today, just to let you know, when, I, when you think about kingdom in this sense, I don't want you to think about like a castle. I actually want you to think about the scepter that the king would hold or the scepter that the queen holds. It reflects the authority that he or she carries, okay? And Jesus told us, you're to pray for the authority of heaven to come to earth. Think about how majestic that is. When I think about heaven, I think about perfection. I think about holiness. I think about shalom, peace, wholeness. I think about worship. Anybody else, when you think about heaven, do you think about worship? So many of the verses that we read, we see how worship is such an integral part of the atmosphere of heaven. Man, I just, I think about perfection. And Jesus actually told us that we're to pray with the audacity of, may the authority of heaven, the same authority that's operating in heaven that allows the perfection and the wholeness and the worship and the atmosphere and the glory, that perfection, that it would come to earth just like it's there. Now, I've shared with you before, and I try to do this, and I'm not saying I'm perfect at it, for crying out loud. I'm a guy, all right? But I try to do this. I try to approach situations in life saying, what would it look like if I brought the authority of heaven into this moment? It's kind of a simple question, but it helps. What would it look like if I brought the authority of heaven, the power of heaven into this moment? Let's use an obvious one. We were in North Dakota this summer at their youth camp. Um, there was a young lady that was demonized, okay? She had demonic strongholds in her life. If, if there's God, and there is, there's a devil, okay? And there's good angels, and there's fallen angels. And there are demonic strongholds that try to attack us, and angels that come along to minister to us. Have you recognized you live in a spiritual world, not just a physical world, okay? So we're not surprised by this stuff. And this girl was, uh, the, 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 the demonic strongholds were really, they were trying to intimidate her, trying to scare her trying to manifest in her, and her body was shaking, and you could, I mean, you could see it, you could sense it. It didn't take a lot of discernment to recognize there was an issue there. And when I step into that moment, I really, to me, in that moment, it's pretty obvious what does the authority of heaven look like? Well, the authority of heaven looks like an oppressed person being set free, right? I mean, at the beginning of this thing, an oppressed person being liberated is what heaven does. Jesus said, I came to liberate the oppressed, so I want to see this person set free. But let's take it a little bit farther than that. How about we see this person set free and not made a spectacle of? Right? Do we need to make a spectacle of? Do we need to gather everybody around? Hey, come look at the demoniac. The demoniac from, uh, I don't know, Bismarck, North Dakota. Everybody gather. I want you to. Do we make a spectacle of this young lady? No. If there's a demonic stronghold in her life, and her body's beginning to tremble, and it's trying to hurt her, 
would we allow that to happen? No. So in my opinion, heaven says she needs to be freed. Heaven also says, I want to protect the decency of a young lady that Jesus dearly loves. So we step over and we begin to pray. And one of the first things that we do is we speak to the spirit oppressing her. And we say, in Jesus' name, you will not mock this young lady. You will not hurt this young, young lady. You will not make a spectacle of because this isn't your show and this isn't your moment to shine. In Jesus' name, stop it and the trembling stops. And then you walk someone through freedom and you don't allow the enemy to get the glory in the moment. You let Jesus get the glory in the moment. That's one example, in my opinion, where it's quite easy to see how to bring heaven or the authority of heaven to an oppressed person and love them enough that you protect their reputation at the exact same time. The last thing we want is somebody manifesting, screaming <laughs> up front and every other kid in the camp avoiding them the rest of the week. We want that person liberated. Can I get an amen in the house? Okay. But what does it look like when you're bringing the kingdom of heaven to a friend, maybe one of your best friends, their, their spouse died six months ago and you love your best friend and she's still completely broken and you're like well how can you not be completely broken they were married for 40 years and of course you're how do you know that god's word says we're to mourn with those that mourn you know sometimes the kingdom of heaven looks like crying with someone you know that jesus knew he was going to raise lazarus from the dead but he still wept at his tomb Sometimes the kingdom of heaven is crying with someone. Sometimes it's sitting there and not saying anything at all because God's word has a command that says, be still and know that I am God. And sometimes we just sit there in silence, but we let them know we're there and we love them. But I, one of the things that we need to understand in the church, I know that to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, Philippians 1.21 says, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is what? It's gain, it's better. How many know it's going to be better there? But it doesn't mean that we feel good about it when they leave us, right? So we mourn with those who mourn. But there is a time that if we don't help somebody walk through that mourning and that grief, did you know that mourning can become depression? And depression can become oppression. And oppression can become control and anxiety and fear. And the next thing you know, you have someone that you dearly love that it started out with, with true biblical mourning and now it's went to, I'm too afraid to leave my house. Have you ever been in a situation like this with someone? That's where mourning is magnified and the enemy manipulates someone and now they don't even have the freedom to live anymore. Have you ever had to say to a friend that had a loved one pass away, they would want you to live? How many of you ever had to do that? I've had to do that with people. I've had to look at them and say, listen, they would want you to live. They wouldn't want you locked in the corner of your home. They want you to live and call it out of them again and call out that life again. There's another example. What does heaven look like? Well, heaven mourns with those who mourn. But heaven doesn't let somebody mourn into oppression, mourn into anxiousness, mourn into a fear of leaving my home. So we can look at every question in life saying, what does heaven look like and how can I bring a little bit more heaven here? So when I think of heaven, I think of peace, freedom, deliverance, okay? I think of so many beautiful things, uh, wealth, wholeness, 
How about generosity? When you think about heaven, do you think about generosity? We're going to talk about kingdom culture, the kingdom culture of generosity, a culture of generosity. I want to give you a few examples of God's generosity. Have you ever thought about God as just being generous? Let me give you a few examples of God's generosity. Number one, um, he gave us his son. Now, I tried to look up a bunch of verses to find the best one to communicate this because I wanted to avoid one you probably know. What's one that you probably know when it comes to this point? John 3, 16. You know why we use that one so often? It's just the best. Look at John 3, 16. Look at how beautiful it is. God so loved, the Greek word for love here is agape, meaning he self-sacrificially loved. He didn't think about himself first. He thought about others first. He so loved the world that he gave his one and his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Anybody can believe in Jesus. No matter what your title is, no matter what your nationality is, anyone who believes can receive and become a child of God. He gave his son. It's amazing. Now, I was brought up in church. Who else was? And pastors had like an illustration book that they all read. And so illustrations would travel around the country because they all had the book. Sometimes the pastors told the story like it was their story because they struggled with lying. Others gave credit to whoever wrote it. Sometimes they would just say, hey, I heard this one time. But there was these books that went around. And one of the stories that went around was quite remarkable. And the story was about this guy that he worked as a drawbridge operator. How many even already know where I'm going? Worked as a drawbridge operator. And his role was simply to open and or raise and lower the drawbridge. And the drawbridge happened to be where a train track was, where a train went through this community. How many of you have heard this story? How many remember this one? It's a horrible story, all right? story goes like this. He would always take his son. His son would be there. Well, one day he had raised the drawbridge. The boat went underneath. And his son, I'm not quite sure how, fell down into the gearbox where all the gears were to re-lower that drawbridge. And the dad recognizes it, and he sees the trains coming, and he's on a countdown to that final moment of, when am I going to have to lower this thing to save this train? But when I do so, I'm going to lose my son. Now, I, was I, mean, I heard this when I was like eight. And actually, because we visited other AG churches, I also heard it when I was nine and 10 and 11 I, and at camp and convention and then uh, winter retreat. But anyway, it, it went around quite a bit. And the train came, and the dad finally made the most agonizing decision ever, and he lowered that drawbridge at the death of his own son to save the people on the train that didn't even realize the price that was paid for them at the time. Now, I hated that story when I was a kid. One of my dear friends, Aaron Phoenix, the district youth director of North Dakota, spoke here last week for our Ignited group. He took it to a whole nother level. He showed a video of that illustration. I wanted to run out the back of the facility. I can't take it. I hate that illustration. Anybody else, did you not like it? How many were cool with it? Don't be cool with it. Real Abby. <laughs> Abigail, seriously. You need to go set by your mom and dad. Okay? You need to set by your mom and dad. This is horrible. Listen, I, I, I'm just going to be real with you. I'm a, I might be a pastor, but I'm also a dad. I'm a guy. I'm not giving my kids for anybody. Can I just throw it out there? And before you think I'm incredibly selfish, how many wouldn't sacrifice your children for anybody else either? 
I, I mean, I just, some of you are like, well, maybe not this week, but please don't be that way. We all have weeks, but you wouldn't sacrifice your children. There's just no way. Uh, Beth made the comment. She said, I know why the father sacrificed his son because no mom would do that. And she goes, otherwise we'd have a godly mother. Instead, we have a godly father, which, okay, I get that, all right. Uh, maybe dads can make that decision easier. But when I, I think about this, I think about the father giving his son and the scripture saying that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. We really had no clue. We were off and we didn't even know we were off. We were deceived and we didn't know it. That's the problem with deception. You don't know when you're deceived. We were messed up and we didn't. And, and in that state, God sent his son anyway. This probably would be enough for us to recognize that the culture of heaven and the culture of our heavenly father is generous. He gave his son. Oh, I'll give my children to the Lord. I've dedicated them to the Lord, and I hope that they do many things, great exploits for the kingdom of heaven, and I don't care if they live on the other side of the earth. I want them to follow everything that God has for them, but the thought of sacrificing them for somebody else, it's just my mind can't go there. And yet he did that for us. Not only did he give us his son, but the second thing is he lavished love on us. Now, lavish is a, a really interesting word. We don't use it all that often in our culture. You, how many of you, this, you know, when you went into work, how are you doing? Oh, great, my kids have been lavishing respect on me all week. Yeah, we don't tend to fall back on lavish all that often. Um, if you look up the word lavish, it, generous, uh, outpouring, you'll even find uh, doting. Have you ever, have you ever like, seen a parent dote over their children or dote over their grandchildren? Uh, like, you know, the first time that Sophie really got dressed up in a little dress and she had her little bow and all that stuff on and she walks in, she goes, hey, Dad, I'm like, Sophie, you look amazing and you just lavish all the compliments. Your hair's fantastic. I love your dress. I'll look at your little socks and they flip over and they got foo-foo stuff on them. It's incredible, all right? And you just, you do it and you lavish on them and you dote on them. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, See what great love the Father lavished on us. And the NIV 1984, it says, How great is the love the Father lavished on us. How do we know that he lavished love on us? What does it say next? That we should be called children of God. How do I know that God lavished love on me? He calls me his child. How great is his love? And that is exactly what I am. The reason the world doesn't know me is that it didn't know him. Right? They don't, they don't recognize us because they didn't even recognize him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, when Christ appears, we shall see him as he is, and we're going to be like him when we see him. It's amazing. We've started this great walk with Jesus. He's already transformed us. How many know that eternity started when you gave your life to Christ? He's already in you. Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Where's God? He's right here. He lives in you. He moves in you. He, he, he breathes in you and through you. It's amazing. And yet we're still going to become so much more when he appears. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. You're not outside the family. You're, you're not out here. Everybody else gets the inside joke and you don't get it. You're not just a friend of the family that everybody else in the family gets a big inheritance and you're just remembered as the nice lady or the nice guy that would show up for Thanksgiving every once in a while. It's not the case. 
He lavished love on us by calling us his children, by adopting us as his own, by putting his own name on us, by putting his DNA into us. God's word says, it's amazing, it says that we're a new creation. And the Greek really struggles with that because it doesn't quite know how to say it. It's like, well, you were already here, but you're not who you used to be anymore. Your DNA's changed. When you believe in Jesus, something miraculous and amazing takes place within your life. Not only does he lavish love on us, but did you know he lavishes grace on us? In Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses eight, uh, 7 and 8, it says this, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. Redemption means that the price for me has been paid for. I've been redeemed. It's been taken care of. The forgiveness of sins, it's been, it's been paid for. How? How have I been redeemed? How have my sins been forgiven? In accordance with what? Well, it says, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavishes on us with all wisdom and understanding. Do you recognize yet that none of us can sin so much that the grace of God can't cover it. You recognize that. And I'm not saying, hey, let's go out and, 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 and add to our sinful state. I'm not, I'm not even suggesting that. But the grace of God was not poured out in the measure of our sinfulness. The grace of God was poured out in the measure of the fullness of God's grace toward us. It's, it's miraculous when you think about all the sins of the world, the sins of the planet. We all have missed the mark. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us get it, and he gets that we don't get it. So he pours out his greatness, not in accordance with our sin, but in accordance with his goodness. And he, you know what he actually calls this? He calls this wisdom. With all wisdom and understanding, God actually thinks that it's wise to pour grace out upon people that didn't even know they needed it. God thinks that it's wise to pay the price for redemption with great liberality for all of those that are yet to know him. He thinks that is wise. He considers it a fullness of his understanding to do that for us. How miraculous is our God? How great is our God? He lavishes love. He lavishes grace. He gave himself. He are his son for us. Number four, let's give you one more. As long as we're reviewing a few examples of God's gener... Ooh, that's a good thought. God's forgiveness is lavished on us, not from the debt of our sin, but from the wealth of his grace. Look at number four. This God that's given us his son, which is already more than I could have ever asked for, who's adopted me into his family, called me his child, which I could have never even dreamed of, um, has lavished grace on me and continues to lavish grace on me because I continue to need it. Anybody else? He continues to lavish grace on me. It also says that he'll give me all things. Now, in Romans chapter 8, you've got this incredible passage, and, and in verses 29 and 30, it says, those that he predestined, he called. And those that he called, he justified. And those that he justified, he glorified. And, and then it gets to this verse, what then shall I say in response? If God has predestined me and he says, hey, you're my child, and I've called you, and I love you, and I've justified you, and now I've actually placed my glory within you, I've glorified you, what do I even say in response to this? If God is for me, who can be against me? 
I mean, what does it matter what the enemy brings at me? If God's predestined me, called me, justified me, glorified me, I come on, Jesus. You're for me. I'm walking with you. I trust in you. I rely on you. And then he says, He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Are we starting to establish a pattern of the generosity of God? He gave his son. He lavishes love. He lavishes grace. And according to what Paul's saying in Romans 8, he'll give you anything. And he's already given his son. That was the best. How will he not graciously give us all things? If you've been wanting to receive a gift to walk in freedom from fear, he has it for you. If you need provision for your household, he is Yahweh Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, the God that provides. If you need peace in your home, he is Yahweh Shaddai, El Shaddai, the God of peace. If you need healing in your body, he's Yahweh Rofi, the, God, the Lord our healer. If, if you need him to put his mark over you so that the enemy doesn't touch you, he's Yahweh Nisi, the Lord our banner. If you have felt insecure and broken, God's word says that he is a strong tower that you can run to and you're kept safe. If you feel like you've been abandoned by everybody else, God's word says he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Church, he gave himself for you. There is nothing he wouldn't do for you. There's nothing he wouldn't do for you. He's generous. He's kind. He's good. He's trustworthy. Let me give you a think about it here for a second. The culture of heaven is generous, and it needs to be prayed for, worked for, and developed on earth. Generosity isn't natural. Generosity is supernatural. I mean, would you agree with me that we've established that God is generous? <laughs> Can we go there? Uh, how about that the, that the culture of heaven is generous? We're praying for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So how's the generosity at Faith Chapel? How's the generosity in the Riley family? How's the generosity in your family? Are we, are, as much as we're called to partner with heaven here and we want to see blind eyes open and we believe he's given us the authority to pray for the sick and we want to see deaf ears open and we want to see lives put back together, we want to see some families restored, we want to see some territorial spirits come down and we want to see O'Fallon be known as a place of the kingdom of heaven. As much as we desire all of that stuff, do we desire the generosity of God? I found, I, I don't do a lot of giving series. I, I talk about this stuff about every two to three years. Um, we don't put it on our annual, we don't sit down, you know, at the end of December and say, hey, let's lay out our sermon series for the whole year, for next year, and let's do our giving series in April when people are getting their ta uh, tax returns back. Let's really hit giving in April so that when people are getting their money back from their tax returns, they're going to have funds that they're going to be able to kick in and we can help the church budget. How many think it's evil that I would even mention that? I've heard it talked about. In my opinion, that's when the church gives in to the strategy of the world. I don't know if you've noticed over the last few years, uh, different uh, 
different stores, Home Depot, Lowe's, you'll see the advertising, watch for it in 2018, that they'll loan you the merchandise based on your tax return that's coming in. We'll go ahead and we'll, based on your tax return, the money that's coming in, you can go ahead and take your merchandise now. It's remarkable. That's a culture of the world to get. A church shouldn't be bringing the get culture into the church. The church should be teaching the giving culture in the church. It's challenging because part of teaching the giving culture is when we even give in a church and a church receives while we're teaching us how to give and you're like, whoa, how does this work, <laughs> right? Giving is challenging. It's a culture that's challenging. Uh, let, me, let me see here. Let's see how far can we go today. Let's define culture. Let's do that. That might help us. And uh, rather than me defining it, I let Texas A&M define it. Uh, I was reading through their website about some different things, and they talked about culture, and they had this paragraph, and I thought it was pretty good, so I'm going to share it with you. They say culture is, quote, a way of life of a group of people, the behaviors, beliefs, values, and symbols that they accept generally without even thinking about them, and that are passed along by communication, imitation, from an imitation from one generation to the next. We'll leave that up there for a little bit. That's a pretty good definition of culture. How many of you have been told that when somebody's ever come over to visit you at your family, that you have a kind of a crazy family culture? But how many realize that the person that said your family culture was crazy has a crazy family culture? Because it's subjective. What's normal in your home is not normal in our home. And it's family culture. It's, it's very much that way. Um, I, in my family growing up, we always sat down at the dining room table to have the meal every evening together. That's where it happened. That was our family culture. I've noticed that lots of times in our family at home that we end up standing around the, basically the extra uh, uh, island area of our kit. We all end up in a circle around there, standing there and eating. I'm like, why are we not sitting down? Why wouldn't we sit down? And yet that has become very, I was observing it again last night. I'm like, wow, this culture is really weird. I wonder who created this. Who's the dad of this house that would allow this to happen? Okay, I, we've created a culture. We stand around that island area and that's where, I, it's just kind of, it's just kind of different. How many know that Faith Chapel has a culture different than other churches? Okay, and I'm not saying it's better or worse than, even though I think it's better, I'm not saying it's better or worse than, but churches have different culture. Let me give you an example, just when it comes to praying for healing. Um, we have such a healing as a part of our culture here that our children know it and demonstrate it, and they consistently pray for each other in the back, and they're seeing miracles on a weekly basis when it comes to healing. Aren't you thankful for that? I mean, I would have loved to have been brought up in a church that actually saw miracles happen. And so we, we have a culture where we're like, we believe that sick is annihilated by the presence of Jesus, and we're teaching that to our children. I also know that we have a generous culture here. Well, then, Pastor Brad, why are you teaching on a culture of generosity? Well, all of us need to partner with it if we're going to do the things that God's called us to do as a collective. But I think even more important than that, we need to partner with it because of what God has for you and your family. Do you realize that these promises of heaven and the challenges of his word are actually for your benefit, not for your negative? 
I've had people say, Pastor Brad, I wish I could have went to Ireland with you. I just don't have the money for missions. You know what? We didn't either until we started pouring more money into missions. And the more that we were willing to let go of finances into kingdom work, the, Lord, the more the Lord brought back to us that we would be able to do more things in kingdom work. I, and I can't share your personal example. That wouldn't even be fair, so I'll share mine. And I, I don't know if, if it's always the right way to go about it, but I'm 48. I've pastored here for 20 years. I guess we'll just see, okay? But tithing has never been an issue for me. Um, I love it when people talk about giving their tithe because actually in God's word, there's never a, uh, anything about giving your tithe. Do you know that? Because it's not yours. How can you give something that doesn't belong to you? God's word says that you bring him his tithe. And all he asks is for his first 10% to come back to him in the form of it. So it wasn't even our money in the first place. It was his money. And it's ultimately the first test of our heart. Am I willing to trust him to take care of me better than I can take care of me. Well, I honor him. So, we, so we, we don't give our tithe, but Beth and I bring the Lord's tithe back to his house. We breathe, I, I'm an Assembly of God pastor, and because I am, we have a district pastor. Many of you have met Pastor Ray. Uh, he did the video for us on our anniversary where he was way too close to the camera. Remember that? And we saw like this huge image of Pastor Ray. Kind of reminded me of the Wizard of Oz thing for a moment. But anyway, um, part of my tithe goes to my district office, to my pastor, that's covering for me, that's, that's, that's uh, spiritual strength for me. So part of it goes there, and the other part, we just put it right here at Faith Chapel. Beth and I support missionaries. We, we give it through Faith Chapel. Um, we help feed people. Anybody else a part of the Convoy of Hope at Faith Chapel? And every year, we're like, Lord, what do you want us to do with our One Day to Feed the World offering? We do that every February. I, I start asking the Lord this time of year, Lord, what are, you, what are you going to want us to do? And start asking him. And, and we're willing to let go of that to help feed orphans that need food and provide education for them so that they can change the pattern in their life and move into something glorious and victorious for their future. So we ask the Lord these things. But I'm here to tell you, it's not always easy. How many of you have ever asked the Lord what you were supposed to give and the number was bigger than you thought it should have been? Come on. Four of us? How many of you were smaller than you thought it would have been? Very rarely is that the case, right? Um, how many of you, when you talk about giving, the negative thoughts come to your mind immediately as to why you can't or you shouldn't? I think it's interesting how quickly we'll start arguing in our head when we talk about generosity. It shows, God's Word says, that it's mammon. There is a spirit behind money that tries to control us. And if we yield to that control, it won't stop with just our financial resources. It'll try to control every area of our lives. And I'm going to teach on it the third week of this series. But one of the reasons that I'm generous is I'm going to break the spirit of mammon from touching my family. I don't want mammon to have its way in my home. I want God to have its way in my home. And that spirit behind the system the spirit of idolatry, the spirit of greed, that is not going to have a foothold within my house, and we're going to break that in the name of Jesus, okay? Now, when we talk about culture, one of the things that I love about, and Pastor Gary was here again last week, and he's, he's how many times has he prophesied over Faith Chapel when he said something like this, you've given when you didn't have to give? I'll tell you, to this day, our church is 20 years old. There are many times 
that when we send a check out for Samuel's house or for one day to feed the world with Convoy of Hope, are you ready for this? The check that we mailed out was far bigger than what was left in the account when we sent it. Think about that. That we're giving away more than we're keeping. Happens many times. What's the point? Generosity is not an overflow of resources. Listen now. Generosity is an overflow of your heart. I'm going to say that again. Generosity is not an overflow of resources. Generosity is an overflow of your heart. I've had people say, well, I want to go on that missions trip, but I've never... Pastor Brad, one of these days, I want to write a check for 1,000. Listen, if we don't write a check for five, we'll never write a check for 1,000. As a matter of fact, if you tell me, I'm believing God that one of these days I'm going to be able to give that $100 I've never been able to give... If you tell me you're believing that, but you haven't given what you could, then you're not really believing for it. How many know that faith without works is what? Dead. You might not be able to write the $100 check today, but you know what? You can say, I'm going to give this five today. And by God's grace, Lord, I'm going to sow it. Because your word teaches me, it's like a seed that I sow. A seed always brings a harvest. And when the harvest comes, I'm going to be able to sow more. And when that harvest comes, I'm going to be able to sow even more. And the five can be a hundred, can be a thousand, can be ten thousand, can be, oh my goodness, did I really make that pledge? And then you watch the Lord do it. Look in Romans chapter 12, and we'll use this to wrap up today. Uh, I've got a few more pages, but we won't get there. Do not conform to the pattern of the world. Um, we do need to conform to heaven's norm, right? I want to conform to the normal of heaven, but I don't want to conform to the pattern of the world, but I want to be transformed from the world's pattern with a renewed mind. Now, the word transformed here, if you love Greek words, and I, you all know that I do, the Greek word for uh, transformed here is metamorpho. It's where we get metamorphosis. It's used a couple of times in the New Testament. Um, one time, when Jesus was on the mountain of transfiguration, and they got to see him the way that he was before he put flesh on. Remember that? He's like shining in all his brilliance. One of the gospel writers said, he became as white as a flash of lightning. Then Mark, who wasn't quite as educated, said, he became as white as bleach can make clothing. You're like, I kind of like the flash of lightning better. That, that, that would do better in the Bible movie series, don't you think? Then the, so, wow, he was bleached. It's amazing. All right, so metamorpho, metamorphosized. So Jesus was transfigured right in front of them. And the way that Jesus was transfigured, according to Romans 12, it says that we have the same thing happening by the renewing of our mind. We have metamorphosis in our mind. You will not know the good, the pleasing, the perfect will of God if your mind's not transformed. Have you ever met somebody that they're telling you they're in God's will and you can observe in two seconds they couldn't be farther away from God's will? You're like, good grief, how could you be so far off the will of God, right? How could you? It's because their mind hasn't been renewed. This is what we have to partner with. Christians can be fully loving Jesus and completely out of God's will because we haven't had a metamorphosis of our mind. God, change my mind. Let me see things from your perspective. Let me say it this way. We need to think about what we're thinking about, okay? 
We need to think about what we're thinking about. We need to be monitoring and guarding the thoughts that are going through our mind on a regular basis and making sure that they line up with the will of God. I want to conform to the normal of heaven, which means I must be transformed by the renewing of my mind so that I don't look at things the way that earth does. Now, I'll share this last story, and then we'll wrap up for today because I've got more, but I'll be here next week. Um, Sophia, it's not here today, so I'll talk about her because it's always appropriate to talk about people when they're not here. Amen? Okay. Um, when she's here, if I use her in an illustration, I have to pay her for it. And uh, as you know, I talk about my kids from time to time. It's been very costly over the years, but sometimes the stories are just worth it. Can I get a name? Sometimes they're worth it. But um, I could tell stories about your kids if I was in your home to know that story. All I can do is tell you the one about mine. And I want to talk a little bit about generosity because I think this story, it's not to embarrass Sophie because she's not the same person that she was when this happened, um, but it just kind of shows something I think we all struggle with. Um, how many know that children, when, parent, when little kids are born and they're, they're saying, mom, 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 and moms think they're saying mom, how many know they're really saying mine? How many you know that? Little kids are, mine, 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 and their mom's like, oh, he said mom. No, he didn't. He didn't. He said mine, and you just don't get it yet. And my child's so generous. He's an only child. Put him in the room with a couple of other ch uh, children. Let's see how that generosity goes. I'm, I've seen some World War III moments in a playroom with kids with plastic hammers and telephones. How many have ever seen those moments? And honestly, they're just like you. I mean, it just comes out. It just like, wow, it comes out. And Sophia was not a generous little girl. And I remember when she was about four years of age and um, when she really started processing that she had a bank account. And I'm not talking about the piggy bank. I'm talking about, you know, her grandma gave her $50 to open up her first savings. And at birthdays or Christmas, literally this little four-year-old, she'd open it up and she would count the money and she'd walk right over to me and she'd go, put it in my bank. Put it in my bank. And I'm like, why do you want to put it in your bank? As a four-year-old, she would say, I'm saving for an RV. How many remember that about Chloe? You remember that? She, I, I, I'm saving for an RV. So I had a four-year-old in my house saving for an RV, a recreational vehicle. I, I don't know if it was the, the commercials of the people kind of swaying along the highway or what. But she, so she was saving for an RV from the age of four till the age of eight, very committed to RV savings. And so, um, so from there, as she, would, as she would give me that money, I would say, okay, baby. I said, now listen, because I know you tithe. You give the Lord his tithe off what you earn. How many know you don't earn a gift? At the same time, we're not going to be able to teach our children about tithing if we don't start working with what they have to work with. So I wasn't trying to take Sophie's money. Not Sophie's money. Everything belongs to the Lord. So I would say, okay, baby, I'd say, listen, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take all this, this amazing stack of money. This is, look at this. It's amazing. We're going to put all this in the bank. But this is the Lord's tithe, and we're going to, give, we're going to bring this to the Lord. No. No, this, this is the Lord's. No, it's my money. It's my birth. Right? And how many you know you love your children, but demons can come out so quickly? Have you ever, you know what I'm talking about? And I'm like, wow. And just this. And so I didn't back down because you've got to learn this. Because nothing is, do you guys know that Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
Nothing belongs to us. We'll talk about that one next week. Nothing. So I'm like, you got to learn this. So I'm like, not only did I make her lay it aside, but I made her put it in the offering box. I'm like, come on, we're going to do this together. And how many know that God's word says he loves a cheerful giver? So I don't really know what he thought of Sophie for a season because she wasn't. I mean, the hands were gri- I'm like, let it go. Let, right? I mean, she just did not want to let it go. But we got it in there and we started breaking that. And we're like, we got to break. But we weren't getting quite where we needed to. And I'm like, we've got to have a better picture than this. So then Beth made a rule. Most of the rules in our home come from Beth. Beth made a rule. When kids get new toys, they have to give away old toys. He's like, we just can't continue to hoard toys from here to eternity. I'm like, okay. I'm like, well, let's start with Sophie. This will be great. So <laughs> this will be a good time. I'm like, hey, Sophie, you got all these new toys, and she's happy. I'm like, so you got 10 new toys at that party. That was amazing. So when we get home, we're going to go in your room, and we're going to pull out 10 old toys that we're going to give to somebody that doesn't have toys. How many know that the spirit didn't receive it quite? She didn't go home with quite the excitement that she had. Dad. And what she would typically do is take all day. She would dig and look and find the 10 worn out, most broken down toys. Anybody else do this with your kids? Have you, Lynn, you must have done this. She would all day, to, she's like, here, Dad, we can give them this. I'm like, it's a Barbie, and all it has left is a head and a leg. And you've taped it together. Well, Dad, we believe in restoration. No! It's not how this works, right? I'm like, no, you need to find good toys that you would play with. We're not going to give somebody our trash. How many know we don't bring trash to people? Right? We bring them something of value. And we worked on that. And you know what? It was hard and it wasn't easy. I want you to know something shifted. It clicked. And one of the things about Sophia that I absolutely adore about her now is her generosity. And I don't remember when the moment happened, but it clicked. And when she was in learning about missions in the back, and we have what's called BGMC, Boys and Girls Missionary Challenge, she was learning about missions. And then out with our youth, we have Speed the Light, and that's their arm of helping, the, helping missionaries. Something clicked with her, and I remember the birthday when she opened up all the cards and she handed me all the money and she said, Dad, I want to give it all to missions. And she didn't keep anything. And then she's like, well, how much do I have in my savings account? And I would tell her, and she would be like, well, I want to give this portion to one day to feed the world. Can I take that out, Dad? Yeah, you can take that out. Now, it's always funny watching somebody open up a present when they get like $100 from a grandma or something, right? I got $100. Thanks, Grandma. Here, Dad, I'm giving it to missions. And Grandma's like, <laughs> great, okay. But how do you teach a kid to tithe that doesn't keep anything? Right? It's... Ch- I'm just sharing that to say the spirit changed. Spirit changed. Some of us need to have a fundamental change of our spirit. He gave his son. He lavished his love. He lavished his grace. He gives us all things. He is the most generous, remarkable, kind, loving God that we can't even comprehend. And if he's called us to bring healing, then let's bring healing. If he's called us to bring hope, then let's bring hope. But if he's called us to be generous, let's be generous. Let's be generous. Let's let that be 